Um, would you pray with me, please? God, we come to that moment in our service where we open your word, Lord, and we don't want to rush too quickly past the fact that your word is holy and your word is powerful and your word is true. So I would ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, which is to convict us, to challenge us, to comfort us, whatever you feel we need in this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I'd like you to think of me for a minute about uh, college admissions. It's that season of the year where seniors in high school or seniors in college, if they want to go to grad school, are doing their applications, right? So much stress. You have to put all of your activities and all of your grades and all of your test scores and all of the things that you do that make you special. I'm getting a couple of nods up front. <laughs> like, you have to encapsulate yourself on a piece of paper. Well, now it's the Common App, so it's online. But you take my point. You have to get it all there because somebody that you don't know sitting in an office that you will never meet is going to decide whether you're good enough to get in. Admissions. Man, that is a job I would never want. Oh, because you know somewhere a student is sitting anxiously waiting for your response. And the weight of the responsibility and knowing that it probably half the time you're going to be disappointing them and changing the course of their life. I would never want that job. Never. God bless the people that do that. But um, as we open our word, the, God's word this morning, we, uh, Jesus is confronted with a similar question. How do I get in? Not to college, not to grad school, but to the kingdom of heaven. How do I get in? So, uh, would you read with me uh, the first part, and actually this scripture, we're going to break it into two parts, because it's kind of a two-part story. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and I'm going to pause at verse 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So we're just going to take a pause there. This first encounter is a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Jesus and when this account is referred to in the other Gospels, he's called the rich young ruler. Um, this man has wealth and power and, um, quite frankly, he's pretty proud of himself. And by human standards, probably justifiably so. So he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get in? What do I need to do? 
What do I need to pile up as far as qualifications that will let me in? And the way he asks the question, he's really essentially saying, Jesus, help me know if I'm good enough. Have I done enough? Have I behaved enough? Am I good enough? Will you take me? Can I come in, please? Let me earn my place in your kingdom, is essentially what he's saying. So Jesus gives him part of an answer. Like we'd like a 10-step kind of checklist that we could all check off. That would be easy. That's not the way it works. Jesus gives him part of an answer. He says, well, keep the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, do not cheat. And so the, the rich young ruler, the man here, says, yes, I think I'm good. I can check all of those boxes. I might be good enough to get in. Now we need know that in the Bible, when um, there's a list, when there's a partial list, it actually refers to the whole list. Let me show you how this works. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says the words, the beginning words of Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in saying that, he's referring not just to those words, but to the Jewish ears that would know the entire psalm because they memorized it. The psalm that talks about why, God, do you feel so far from me? Deliver me from the pain that I'm in. And all that that psalm means, the history of it and how it's used. So that phrase uh, is just a small part of the whole. The closest modern day equivalent that I could think of was when Americans say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, right? That's just a couple of words from a whole big document and a whole understanding of our democracy, right? Freedom, uh, equal rights, the whole uh, civil rights movement, all of that kind of comes up under that phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So it's kind of the same thing. A part represents the whole. So I tell you all of that to tell you I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't actually think that he's listing parts of the commandments to represent the whole of the commandments. Now, Pastor Howard read the commandments for you, so you should know all of them, right? You have them all memorized. If you look at the commandments that Jesus specifically lists in his answer, they are the outward things, the things that other people can observe. If you don't kill, if you don't cheat on your spouse, if you don't lie, if you honor your father and mother, those are objective things that people can say yes or no. But what Jesus does for this man, and by extension for us, is to say, yeah, you've obeyed those commands. Good job, check, check, check. But, he says, I have one more thing for you, and he calls it one small thing. 
time, right? One small thing, you must sell everything that you own and give the money to the poor. Um, what? <laughs> uh, excuse me, what? Because you see, we, we know that he had a lot of money. And so Jesus goes way past external obedience to what's your heart condition? Because those commandments about not having any other gods before me and not worshiping idols and not getting caught up in all of those things, all those, all those commands that speak to our relationship, our internal heart relationship with God, Jesus didn't list those. Because probably he knew the rich young ruler couldn't check those boxes. Which is why he says, just this one small thing, sell all you own and give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. Jesus is not messing around. Yeah. What he saw in that guy's heart was selfishness and pride. And oh, by the way, none of us is exempt from all of that. We all have pride and something that we hold in our hearts. But what Jesus saw, which is so sad, is that that thing, his sort of identity, he made his identity in what he earned and his position in society and his respectability and his ability to follow the rules and be obedient, good boy. When you make that your identity, and somebody challenges that, it's really hard. See, he made the mistake of thinking that his position and his money made him worthwhile, made him good enough to earn a place in heaven. Surely Jesus must think that I'm exemplary. I'm very obedient externally. But what Jesus is looking for is a generous heart, a grateful heart, a heart that recognizes that all that he has was a gift from God anyway, so he should be thankful and grateful and willing to share openly and generously. And yet that's not the case for this man. So it says... He walks away sad. I think that's like one of the saddest lines in the Bible. Like, he walks away sad. Jesus gave him the admission ticket to the kingdom. And he said, yeah, I'm going to fold my cards and go. I, I just think that I'd rather have my stuff. Yeah. So, what I want to caution us against, which is what we always say when we preach this passage, is having money does not disqualify you from heaven. I just want to go on record as saying, we all need money, God provides money, money is okay, money is not inherently evil in itself, but when it becomes the idol, and when we build our identity around how self-sufficient we are because of the money in our bank account, that's where the problem comes in. So, money is not evil. Our worship of money has the potential to be evil. Because if given the choice between your stuff and your position,
position and your wealth and your home and everything else you value and God, if you would choose this, you'd be sad too. Because that's what the man did. He said, I, I, I kind of want to go, but I, I got to stay with what I got. I got to know. I got to hold on. And that's why it's sad. So that's the first part of our two-part little encounter here. Let's pick up the story at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Their disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. So there's a lot going on in this second half. It's evident that the disciples were listening in on this conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler, and they were puzzled because they knew their Bible, and they knew the Ten Commandments, and they knew that you had to keep them, so if his obedience wasn't good enough, us as disciples, they were thinking, oh my gosh, we're poor fishermen who are barely literate and we don't have lots of money. And oh, yeah, that's puzzling. So they naturally do what we do when we hear Jesus talking. How does that apply to me? If that guy can't get in, how can I get in? Like, he's way better than me at X, Y, Z. The, com the comparison game is no fun at all. So Jesus says his famous saying, a little puzzling, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Nice hyperbole, thank you very much. He's exaggerating. Because you know that a camel is gigantic and the eye of the needle is very, 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 very tiny. So it's impossible for a full-size camel to go through the eye of the needle. What he's saying is he's, he's contrasting the size. So this giant animal can't go through the eye of the needle and the rich man, whose head is so big because he's full of his own pride, can't fit through 
can't go into the kingdom of God, where humility and servanthood and sometimes persecution and suffering occurs. So it's not a size of their wealth problem, it's a size of their faith problem. Their faith is too small. Wow. The disciples are the ones walking around with Jesus every day, seeing every miracle, seeing every encounter, learning, soaking it in, and yet they're still like, yeah, we're not good enough. We can't get in either. It's kind of distressing. So they talk amongst themselves, the disciples, and it's not like Jesus doesn't know what they're thinking even before they say it. But, Jesus, but Peter, as is often the case, becomes their spokesperson. And he says, Jesus, essentially, we don't have lots of money, but we did give up stuff. We gave up our families, we gave up our livelihoods of fishing, we left our village to follow you. We have no money, but we did give up a lot of stuff. This is not a newsflash to Jesus. So essentially, Peter and the disciples are making the same error kind of inside out and backwards, right? So the rich young ruler piles up his accomplishments and say, does this earn me a place in heaven? And the disciples go, but I gave up this and this and this and this and this. Do I earn myself a place in heaven? It's the same argument. It's all about what I've done or what I've given up that make me worthy to get into heaven. Is my admission ticket worthwhile? They were making the same mistake because their faith was too small. The disciples feel that they've given up so much and sacrificed so much that surely that would earn them brownie points, essentially. Brownie points is not in the text. I'm just adding that. Same flawed logic, but coming at it from two different perspectives. I have accomplished a lot, or I've given up a lot. See, turning the equation upside down doesn't necessarily help. The rich young ruler says, I have a resume, I have success, I have obedience, I have good deeds, and that should earn me a place in heaven. The disciples say, I have family and job and livelihood, and I subtracted all of that. Not adding, but subtracting. And therefore, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. Surely that should earn me a place in heaven. So Jesus says, essentially, it's not about what you've done or what you've given up. It's about what I have done. And I am going to give up. Because he knew the cross was coming. And he knew the incredible sacrifice and pain and suffering that was going to be involved in his passion. 
It's interesting to me that this account, this sort of two accounts, come right after the account where Jesus talks to the, talks to the disciples and said, you've got to be like little children. Pastor Howard told us last week, when children receive a gift, they don't feel like they have to earn it. Children just say, yay, thank you. And Jesus calls the disciples, children, like really, we have to go over this again. Children, if you act like children and just receive open-handedly the gift of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that gets you in. If your heart is generous enough and you know that God has poured everything into your life and you therefore want to share it with everyone you know, then you get in. Your admittance is your faith in what Jesus has done and what Jesus has given up, not in anything that we could do or we could pile up or we could subtract. We gotta just be like children and open-handedly receive it, which by the way is kind of hard. Once we get to be adults, we kind of wanna, somebody gives you a gift, you wanna give one back or do something nice for them. No, that's not what it's about. It's just about receiving, having faith, trusting God. See, Jesus did everything. He fulfilled every Old Testament commandment. All of those commandments were only ever kept perfectly by one person, and that was Jesus. And he also gave up everything. In Philippians 2, it reminds us, he did not e consider equality with God in heaven something to hold on to, but he emptied himself, came down, and took on the form of a human. And not just any ordinary human, but a human that would be willing to die for other people. And not just die like a regular death, but a terrible, horrible, torturous death on the cross. Went from being God to death on a cross. You cannot give up more than that, by definition. Jesus is essentially gently saying to his disciples, it's not about you. And he loves them when he says that because he knows that their hearts in some way want to obey and want to bring him glory, but it's kind of gotten twisted in that way where we think we have to earn stuff. <laughs> We need to put our side, aside our sense that we can get in on our own merits. Like children receiving a wonderful gift, we just need to come with open hands and generous hearts and faith. That's it. We heard in the news, speaking of college admissions, that there were some parents who apparently thought that they could game the system. They paid people to take their, their child's tests so their scores would be higher, and they paid people to say that they were on the rowing team when they couldn't be on the rowing team. And 
They just tried to game the system because they felt like they weren't good enough and they didn't want to just get that letter that says, no thank you. They wanted to game the system. The system of the kingdom of heaven cannot be gamed, cannot be worked around, cannot be sort of backup plan in place. It, it doesn't work that way. So I'm not sure what's on your resume. I know it's on some of your resumes. Impressive. A lot of us got education, therefore think we might be smart enough, or strong enough, or obedient enough, or successful enough. Many of us have also likely sacrificed a fair amount. Time, energy, talent, serving the church, serving people in the community. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that a camel can go through the eye of a needle. It's just not possible. That does not earn us a place in the yes pile, thinking that we are good enough to earn it. That's inside out and backwards thinking. It's so not about us, it's about Jesus. Remember when I said that you either have what it takes or you don't to get into college or grad school or whatever? For the kingdom of God, you either have what it takes or you don't. And what it takes is Jesus. Period. End of conversation. So that's what this passion teaches us. It's all about Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Would you pray with me?